Welcome to this Walnut Wednesday edition of the My Ag Life Daily News Report. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. I'm your host, Lori Boyer. In the show today, Taylor Charleston will be talking about pest management options available for walnut scale populations. And I'll have a look at regional and national agricultural news, kicking things off with regional ag news right after this word from our sponsor. Sponsored by the California Walnut Board and Commission. Supporting the industry with on-farm innovation through production research, advocacy for government programs, and driving consumer demand. Doing more together. On November 1st, USA's National Agricultural Statistics Service will mail the 2022 Cost of Pollination Survey to over 2,700 California crop producers. The survey will be sent to nearly 16,000 producers who raise anything from almonds to zucchinis nationwide. Survey recipients are asked to respond securely online through a respondent portal by mail or by fax. The online portal is iCounts.USDA.gov. Those who do not respond by November 14th may be contacted by a NAS representative to arrange an interview to complete the survey. All information reported by producers will be kept confidential as required by federal law. NAS will publish the survey data on January 11, 2023 on the NAS website, which is nas.usda.gov. And also from the USA National Agricultural Statistics Service, in the Pacific Region Milk Production Report released recently, milk production during September totaled 3.29 billion pounds, up a half percent from September of 2021 and down 5% from August of 2022. The number of milk cows on farms in California was 1.72 million head, up 4,000 from September of 2021 and unchanged from August of 2022. Production per cow in California averaged 1,910 pounds, up 5 pounds from September of 2021 and down 100 pounds from August of 2022. The future workforce on Valley Farms will include more robots to plant, pick, and weed. The recent fire conference held at the Fresno Convention Center featured creations like the Amiga by Farming, which offers different applications from towing to seeding. What happened downtown could have a big impact on the direction that the ag industry takes when it comes to automation. Companies, scientists, and visitors from 26 countries were at the fire conference. Weeding robots have drawn attention from farmers dealing with labor shortages. They're really glad to see the weeding progress because they feel like that's a place where the dam's going to break open, according to Western Growers Vice President of Innovation, Walt Dufflock. He says that's the first place that the market's going to say, okay, they can really do this at scale. Harvest automation has also come a long way. Two companies have developed robots, which are picking apples in Washington. The conference featured 16 robot demonstrations. Salinas Valley lettuce markets are hitting record highs as demand far exceeds supply levels. The impatience necrotic spot virus has been extremely aggressive in large swaths of the Salinas Valley for over three months, and suppliers are running out of fields to harvest and expect the season to end early. Experts say to expect elevated markets and tight supplies for lettuce items until the desert season is in full swing in approximately mid to late November. While certain types of organic hard squash are sold year-round, this organic vegetable is at peak popularity and variety right now. It is the time of the year for these winter or hard squashes, according to Robert Schuler, Director of Public Relations at Melissa's Produce in Los Angeles. He said they started their current program on August 22nd and will have them through December. The most popular varieties of squash are butternut, spaghetti, acorn, and kabocha. But at this time of the year, the varietal mix expands to include 
Delectica, Carnival, Buttercup, and Red Curie. In fact, Melissa's merchandise is a 650-pound bin of organic mixed squashes that feature all eight varieties. Butternut and spaghetti squash each account for 30% of the bin's volume, while the acorn variety adds another 15%. The other five varieties each chip in with 5%. The bin is the way to go, according to Schuler. He says it's priced attractively, and many retailers merchandise it very aggressively. In California, where the weather is warm, they see a lot of retailers merchandising the hard squashes outside in the front of the store. Though there's been some upward price pressure because of inflation, Schuler said the 650-pound bin offers a value option with great merchandising appeal. The price break is especially significant in the organic bin option over the more traditional carton with a freight on board price. While the hard squashes are popular for their culinary attributes, the Melissa's representative said they also have an ornamental attraction to some customers, especially during the fall season. Many retailers, he said, also like to merchandise hard squash alongside pumpkins in the run-up to Halloween. This year's crop, Schuler says, is of excellent quality, noting that with hard squashes, especially butternut, add some great flavor to the Thanksgiving menu. The transition from California grapes to imported grapes will likely happen earlier this year. Supply for the domestic U.S. market is adequate for the moment, despite early season weather issues. They do expect the California crop to finish early this season, which will open a door for an earlier start for Peru, according to Dirk Winkleman, president of Vanguard Direct, who notes that the transition period will begin in November. Retailers are understanding of that, so they have been earlier in contracting and making commitments for imported product. While supplies are still coming largely out of California, northern Peru has started up with a limited volume of grapes, as has Brazil. Due to slightly cooler weather, they look to be slightly delayed by a few days in the Ica area, but will catch up quickly to the harvest plan, according to Winkleman. They expect to begin harvest of ivory the second week of November, with arrivals to Asia and the U.S. markets by the middle of December. Sweet celebrations should begin two weeks after the ivory, with final arrivals to the U.S. and Asia towards the middle to the end of April of next year, with sales going through the middle of May. Meanwhile, demand overall looks strong. Winkleman says it's unsettled in some markets. Consumption is the unknown right now. Inflation will have an impact on buying patterns, and the retail price point will be a key determinant for attracting the consumer's purchasing decisions. Currently, pricing from California is still at promotable levels, though Winkleman says the price points nationally at retail don't necessarily reflect current offers. There's giant potential sleeping in your soil. Under drought conditions, it's never been more important to wake it up. Phycoterra, a superior soil microbial food, activates the native microbes responsible for your soil's health and water-holding capacity. Adding Phycoterra to your crop increases water retention up to 10% and optimizes crop nutrient availability. Plus, it delivers excellent mixability and application flexibility, making it easy to add to your existing crop input strategy. Visit phycoterra.com learn how you can wake up your soil's giant potential with phycoterra. Walnut scale has been an issue for walnut growers for years, and low prices and high input costs have made management of this pest all the more necessary. Some speculate that the pest has stuck around for so long due to a lack of parasitoid populations in certain areas. When monitoring the pest, it's recommended to look for biological control activity, UCCE Farm Advisor Elizabeth Fitchner discussed at last month's Crop Consultant Conference her experience with walnut scale. One thing she's come to realize is that growers and PCAs may be looking too much into females and not enough of the males when it comes to control. 
The females go through only three molds. We go from crawler to instar to instar to adult, whereas the males go through five molts. That tells me that there's more opportunities for those IGRs, the insect growth regulators, to affect the male population. And I think a lot of us really are thinking so much about the female population because it's kind of what we see. So an IGR application in March may inhibit the maturation of this nymph stage, and it may inhibit the, the maturation of the adult males. So that's an absolute possibility with those delayed dormant sprays. Now, if we did an application at crawler emergence, which is another typically recommended timing, if you use an IGR here, you would affect the downstream molts and the second generation and maybe this overwintering population. So you might not see the results of that application till the next year. Fitchner said a lot of growers and PCAs in the Central Valley have asked her about spraying for walnut scale in January, as there is nothing in the UC guidelines on this. I am going to tell you what hypothetically would happen if you spray in January. There's a logic to it, because a lot of people are doing it and finding it to be successful. Okay, if you spray in January, these nymphs are not mature. So you may be affecting the maturation of these nymphs into adult females and also the emergence of the males because it's affecting the molting process. So I would say that within the context of logic, those January applications that so many growers and PCAs have asked me about, from what I can tell, just looking at the life cycle, that's what that type of timing of application would address, and I don't have research data for it. Regarding specific chemical control measures that UC does have published data on. Centaur and Cs and Movento, they provided excellent long-term walnut stale control, eight months after application. Brigadier, Sequoia, a sale at the high rate provided acceptable control. A sale at the low rate was not significantly di different than the untreated check. Walnut scale, if you've heard it's not important, it is. Populations probably escalated to the point that it is now currently an important insect and a pest in its own right. Um, orchard ecosystems have probably impacted the scale. Don't know what those, what those um, uh, changes were. And it exacerbates canker disease issues. Chemical control is a long-term long strategy. Be patient. You're really only going to be doing one application of an insecticide for this per year. And um, the results of the IGR applications, for example, may take time. You're listening to My Ag Life. I'm Taylor Tallstrom. Sponsored by the California Walnut Boarding Commission. Supporting the industry with on-farm innovation through production research, advocacy for government programs, and driving consumer demand. Doing more together. Do you know the nutrient use efficiency people? Yes, I'm talking about the folks at Verdesian Life Sciences that deliver crop insights and solutions so California crops grow to their full potential. 
from micros with a proprietary delivery system to solutions that help improve the uptake and assimilation of applied nutrients. Visit VLSCI.com to learn more about Verdesian solutions or to connect with a local representative right here in California. Ongoing inflation resulted in higher retail prices of organic fresh produce during the third quarter of this year. The Organic Produce Network says that generated a 4.1% increase in total organic dollars, but also contributed to a decline of 4.5% in organic volume compared to the same period last year. Overall, organic fresh produce pricing per pound increased by 8.9% during the third quarter compared to the same time in 2021. Sales during the third quarter topped $2.4 billion this year. At the same time, conventional produce's average price per pound increased by more than 10%, with total sales of almost $18 billion. Tomatoes were the bright spot for organic sales in the third quarter, thanks to a 19% increase in volume and a hefty 30% increase in dollars. 14 of the top categories posted year-over-year increases in dollars, led by potatoes, onions, and peaches. Producers can now decide if they wish to elect either agricultural risk coverage or price loss coverage for this coming year. USA Ag News reporter Rod Bain has more. The sign-up for ARC PLC for the 2023 crop started on October 17th. It runs through March 15th. And USDA Farm Service Agency Deputy Administrator Scott Marlowe says with various events over the last two years, agriculture risk coverage and price loss coverage provide needed risk management options. We just recently processed about $255 million in payments for the 2021 crop year. Producers can change their election of program coverage as well as enroll for their choice for this coming crop year. Web-based decision tools are available to determine coverage options found at www.fsa.usda.gov in the Programs and Services tab leading to the ARC PLC page. Marlowe adds ARC and PLC election and enrollment choices can have impacts on eligibility of some crop insurance products, such as supplemental coverage option. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Washington State Republican and Representative Dan Newhouse joined over 80 House colleagues in the introduction of the Protect Farmers from the SEC Act. The legislation is a direct response to the SEC's proposed climate disclosure rule. Newhouse says the SEC's proposal would force publicly traded companies to require small independent family farms to report on-farm data regarding individual operations and day-to-day activities. He says this would hinder the ability of American farmers and ranchers to compete in global markets. The chair of the Western Caucus added, if the federal government is trying to drive family farms out of agriculture, this proposal from the SEC is a good first step. It puts so much uh, work and responsibility on the shoulders of family farmers that um, most people will not be prepared to comply with this proposed law. Specifically, they protect farmers from the SEC Act prohibits the SEC from requiring an issuer of securities to disclose greenhouse gas emissions from upstream and downstream activities in the issuer's value chain arising from a farm. The legislation also defines the production, manufacturing, or harvesting of an agricultural product through the Agricultural Marketing Act of 1946, and it outlines upstream and downstream activities and defines greenhouse gases. Finally, the bill removes the SEC's exemptive authority in relation to this act. Critical that we stand up to these kind of regulations. We say, no, this is just not possible. I encourage every single farmer listening to contact your senator, 
if, if you're not my constituent, contact your member of Congress. Let them know that this is too onerous to put on our shoulders, and we must stop it. Once again, that is U.S. Representative Dan Newhouse, a Washington State Republican. The Association of Equipment Manufacturers, the National Dairy Producers Federation, and the Dairy Farmers of America issued a report on modern technology in the dairy industry. Farm News reporter Chad Smith. The new technology has positively impacted consumers, dairy farmers, and cows during the past 15 years. Chad Heiser, president of Lely North America, says dairy farmers are starting to adapt to the new technologies because there are a lot of benefits to it. This innovation, this technology and equipment that we're able to provide now is offering such tremendous valuable data to help these farms make better decisions. And the data really becomes where a lot of farmers tend to gravitate towards to help understand how to make a better decision for their animal because we want to keep our focus very much on the heartbeat literally of of a dairy operation and that's the dairy animal. There's a lot of opportunities to have discussions uh, around ways that they can enter technology and bring that onto their operation. He talks about some of the steps that can lead to more technology adoption. That's interesting because we're always looking at ways to remove or, or lessen some of the barriers. And if you think about adoption in general, you're talking about adopting a new way of thinking, a new way of managing, maybe new types of equipment or data. So that's one area. The other thing is increasing adoption. You need to have a financial story. You need to talk about finding new and more ways to help that dairy producer grow farm income. Can we take away some of the volatility they might have in input costs? We talk about managing labor or feed costs, two of the most significant cost drivers. Oftentimes, just helping a a producer manage through the the peaks and the valleys of milk prices by having more fixed or more predictable cost prices are important, and technology can play a role in that. Adopting new technologies can help farmers go a long way in improving the sustainability of their operations. We believe the core of that unlocking or, or focus on that sustainability piece is really giving them all the tools and the data from those tools to help them really understand what's going on in their operation, how they're managing water, what are the nutrient demands in those fields. If you think about producing an acre of forage, we want to help them manage that in terms of how much can we harvest from that piece of property? How do we get the most out of that feed ration so that the animal is being as efficient as she can be in utilizing that pound of whatever that feedstock might be? We start to have so much information about the behavior and the way that animal produces and works and how we can positively impact that, that is a huge part of the sustainability piece if we look at how we're going to continue to produce and harvest fluid milk into the future. The dairy industry set a goal of carbon neutrality by 2050, and Heiser talks about the next steps for getting there. We tried to look back and say, here's what we believe we've accomplished through the data we gathered over the last 15 years. And then we take an attempt to project out what would the coming five to eight, 10 years look like. And I think the study does a nice job of highlighting that. So if we can see some of those increases of adoption of technology and this correlation of data that I've talked about, we're going to see continued advantages around that investment. We're going to keep innovating both in the hardware and the nuts and bolts, as well as in the data analytics. That's a part of our industry that is just exploding. The role we're going to play, find new and innovative ways to keep those solutions in the hands of those farmers that we know are there for the long term. The report was released at this year's World Dairy Expo in Wisconsin. To download and view the entire study, please visit aem.org forward slash insights. Chad Smith reporting. Bee Hero is the leading almond pollination provider. We deliver measurable and verifiable pollination outcomes for almond growers and turn a previously unquantified fingers crossed gamble into a controllable expenditure. 
for the first time, growers can know exactly what they are getting for their money during pollination. Bee Hero accurately evaluates your bee's pollination contribution in real time and gives you unprecedented visibility into the progress of bloom. Don't leave pollination to chance. Be sure. Be precise. Be Hero. Call Charlie Phillips, VP of Sales at 559-467-9699. Be Hero. Superior bees, superior pollination. Research has recently surfaced regarding new, innovative ways to use polycrylamide, or PAM, to assist growers in efficient water use. Michael Kahn, Irrigation Water Resource Farm Advisor for UC Cooperative Extension, tells us more about PAM and how the use of it is being expanded. Polycrylamide is a a long-chain polymer, and we call it PAM for short, that was... um, has been around many years uh, for various purposes. It's sort of a a flocculant. And um, in soil, what it does is it attaches to suspended soil particles and um, stabilizes them. Um, And so it can improve aggregate stability of soil, but when you add it to runoff water, it uh, sticks to the suspended sediments and causes them to flocculate out. It's it's a very big molecule. Uh, uh, if you think of table salt as a molecular weight that is you know less than um, 100 grams, and uh, when we talk about polycrylamide, it has a molecular weight sometimes as much as. 12 or 15 megagrams uh, per mole. So it's a, it's a huge molecule and that's why it's a very good flocculant. It's also made out of, um, made from um, natural gas and it's a very simple polymer. Uh, so it's fairly inexpensive. And it's been used uh, for soil erosion control in furrow or flood irrigation systems for many years, especially in the Northwest, in certain parts of the Central Valley where they use uh, furrow irrigation. Um, so it um, has a, you know, a long use in, in these type of irrigation systems. It has been much less used in uh, sprinkler systems where the water is pressurized. Researchers have been exploring new uses of PAM due to growers wanting to reuse their tailwater. PAM can help make this process easier by decreasing the amount of chlorine needed to treat the water by reducing suspended sediment in the water. The use of PAM has not really gotten that popular, you know, in that I know of in California, um, except for maybe in furrow irrigation systems. Uh, and in pressurized systems, although we've demonstrated it works well, uh, not to my knowledge, not many growers are using it. And one reason is um, the liquid formulation of PAM is a little pricey, and uh, and growers, uh, you know, tend to spend money if it's going to improve crop yield, but if it's just you know improving water quality downstream. Uh, for the environment, uh, you know, they, there's probably not a lot of motivation to invest um, mon- money in doing that. Uh, while we got we got involved with 
polyacrylamide um, recently because uh, growers want to reuse their tailwater in the Salinas Valley. And if you capture tailwater and it's full of sediment and you want to reuse it, um, you, you need to make sure that it is uh, safe uh, in terms of having minimal uh, human pathogens like E. coli in it. And to do that, you would use um, like a chlorine treatment of the water. But if you have a lot of sediment, you need a lot of chlorine and it becomes very expensive uh, to reuse that water. So sort of the renewed interest in um, you know, using PAM is to remove the sediment, the suspended sediments, so that you use less chlorine when you're doing the treatment um, of that water for reuse. So that's how we, you know, got more involved. And where we have runoff in the Salinas Valley is in a lot of these vegetable fields that are using pressurized, um, you know, uh, sprinkler systems. And there's the challenge is how do you get PAM into that water? Uh, in the past, we did that using uh, a pump and using these liquid PAMs, but like I mentioned, they're, they're more expensive. So we looked at a, an alternative way that we could do this, and that is um, basically having uh, a portion of that pressurized water go through a system of cartridges which uh, have uh, this uh, dry PAM put into it ahead of time. And so as that water streams through the, these chambers with these cartridges, it picks up just small amounts of PAM, less than a part per million is all you need in the water uh, to be effective in minimizing the sediment that comes off the fields. So that's one approach that we've been looking at. And the other approach is actually applying the PAM powder uh, directly to runoff in ditches in the farm fields that, you know, these ditches that run through the farm fields. And that system is a little more complicated because we need a um, way to monitor what the flow rate is in those ditches. And then we need an auger system that's controlled by a small computer to adjust the rate that we drop the PAM into the water so that we just put enough in to drop out the sediment. And both approaches seem to work quite well. Um, and uh, now we're just trying to prove that they're reliable in commercial fields. So far, Khan and his team have had great success using PAM cartridges for sediment removal. Uh, the system where we uh, run the water through these chambers with the PAM cartridges, we found in four field trials that we did uh, in lettuce that we could remove approximately 90% of the sediment that would be suspended in that runoff. So by the time the water left the field, it had 90% less uh, sediment compared to um, untreated control area of the field. When we apply PAM directly to the runoff water, so this is just runoff water coming off a field that hasn't been treated by PAM, but then in the ditches, add enough PAM 
to apply about five parts per million into the water, uh, we can remove uh, about 97% of the suspended sediments. If you would like to learn more about PAM or the research that is currently being conducted, please visit UCANR's Salinas Valley Agricultural blog. This is Kylie Harlan reporting for My Ag Life. JCS Marketing is your number one way to connect with the ag industry. Through print magazines, digital media, podcasts, and live and virtual events, JCS Marketing has the reach to inform, educate, and influence growers in the Western United States. Everywhere you go, you see West Coast Nut Magazine on every one of my customers' tables. So that tells you everything. That's, that, it's there, so they're reading it. Our My Ag Life platform includes podcast interviews and digital articles for busy professionals on the go. Our live events, continuing education webinars, and virtual conferences help growers connect with leading researchers and industry leaders. Let JCS Marketing help you connect. That will wrap up today's show. You've been listening to the My Ag Life Daily News Report. I'm Lori Boyer. From all of us here at the JCS Marketing Team, thank you for listening. Thank you.